Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. My first guest this week, Rose B. Simpson, is in seemingly every show in New England this season. The Institute of Contemporary Art Boston is showing Rose B. Simpson Legacies, an exhibition of 14 sculptures Simpson has made over the last eight years. It was curated by Jeffrey DeBlois and is on view through January 29th, 2023. Simpson is included in two other New England presentations. Her sculpture, Counterculture, is installed at Field Farm, a trustee's property in Williamstown, Massachusetts. She's also in Ceramics in the Expanded Field at Mass Mocha. Counterculture was organized by Jamili Lacey and will be on view through April 30th, 2023. Ceramics, which is up until early March 2023, was curated by Susan Cross. And we're a couple weeks early on this next one, but this fall, the Fabric Workshop and Museum in Philadelphia will feature Rose B. Simpson Dreamhouse. It opens on October 7th. Across ceramic sculpture, performance, installation, and more, Simpson's work addresses ideas as far-ranging as resistance, apocalypse, spirituality, and automobile design. Museums such as the University of New Mexico Art Museum, Simpson lives in Santa Clara Pueblo, the Nevada Museum of Art, the Savannah College of Art and Design's SCAD Museum of Art, and the Pomona College Museum of Art have all presented solo exhibitions of her work, and Simpson has been in group shows at the Henry Art Gallery at the University of Washington, the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, the Cleveland Museum of Art, the Denver Museum of Art, and plenty more. On the second segment, influential photographer George Massa. But first, Rose B. Simpson, after the break. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, an art museum in St. Louis where ideas are freely explored, new art is exhibited, and historic work reimagined. This fall, the Pulitzer presents Barbara Chase Ribou, Monumentale, The Bronzes, a major monographic presentation examining the artistic vision of the Paris-based artist, novelist, and poet Barbara Chase Ribou. On view from September 16th to February 5th, 2023, Monumentale brings together some 40 major sculptures from the 1950s to the present day, accompanied by 20 drawings. The exhibition illustrates the artist's highly original visual language that is fundamentally global and transhistorical, with influences ranging from Italian Baroque architecture to West African bronze making. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. On view through January 8, 2023 at the Getty Center, the bold new exhibition Reinventing the Americas, Construct, Erase, Repeat, analyzes the mythologies and prejudices Europeans spread after they began exploring the continent and reveals the influence that those images have had on defining the Americas. The exhibition counters the views of European chroniclers, illustrators, and printmakers from the 16th to 19th centuries with artistic interventions by Danielson Baniwa, an indigenous Brazilian contemporary artist, and commentary by indigenous and Latino members of the Los Angeles community. Reinventing the Americas is presented in English and Spanish. Watch a documentary about Danielson, plan your visit, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. For more than 30 years, Los Angeles-based artist Andrea Bowers has made art that activates. Combining artistic practice with activism and advocacy, the work speaks to deeply entrenched inequities and the generations of activists working to create a more just world. This summer, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents the first museum retrospective surveying the entire scope and evolution of Bowers' production. Bringing together over 60 works and a trove of ephemera, the exhibition reflects Bowers' experimentation with a wide range of mediums 
and her impact as a chronicler of contemporary history. Andrea Bowers, on view at Hammer from June 19th to September 4th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. And we're back. Rose B. Simpson, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Much of your work, most, most of your work even, features the human form, and much of it is in clay. And so I thought that maybe we should start there. Those, those are two pretty specific decisions. Did addressing the human form in your work or using clay interest you first? I think it, was, it would be the human form, because clay was something that I didn't initially want to get into. <laughs> oh, really? Why not? Because I wanted, as a teenager, I was wanting to distance myself from my family and history and forge my own way. <laughs> so I was doing a lot of like comic book, graphic design, drawings, and then I was coming up with sort of caricatures that could be spray painted on things largely. Yeah. So then what brought you back to the human form and back to clay? I actually took ceramics as an easy credit at the University of New Mexico when I was there in Albuquerque. And I started creating. <laughs> I was like, knucklehead, young person trying to find an easy way through college. <laughs> and I started making my caricatures that I was drawing in clay. And it felt like a way to sort of own my aesthetic and my sort of youth culture that I felt very strongly about. I was really caught by I think social systems, especially youth cultures and in indigenous communities, going to school at the Santa Fe Indian School, which is a Indian boarding school that's now owned by the by the 19 Pueblos. And I was really interested in sort of finding that aesthetic of like a teenager in the 1990s, but also being a native person and trying to find culture. What is culture and how is that empowered? How do we use youth cultures to empower ourselves and, and find a way where we're loving ourselves. So I felt like there was a lot of, you know, you feel misunderstood, you don't feel seen in the world, you don't feel like you have a place in the world when you don't see yourself in the media or hear yourself in the music or see yourself reflected or validated in mainstream media, I think in general. And so trying to find where you fit in that was really important for me when I was young. And so that's where the caricatures that were based a lot on like hip hop culture, et cetera, were, were really important to me. And I started building these figures out of clay in the way that I saw my mother do. So it was like a coil built figures that I watched my mom make ever since I was a little kid. But I was making them my own, right, with big feet, with like baggy pants, <laughs> with this kind of like large hands and sort of expressive features around content that mattered, mattered to me. And so I think that when I revisited Clay and I realized that, you know, you have a tool or a neural pathway that's, that's already there and you realize that this could be a beneficial mode of expression and that I still could make it my own without feeling like a, I'm stuck in the, fam in the family sort of sentence, you know? So as I look at your, your oeuvre now, say your oeuvre over the last eight or 10 years, some of your forms that are human figures are clearly sexed, are clearly women, and some are not. Some are androgynous. I'm not even sure androgynous is the right word, even though I've read critics use it in regard to your forms. But the, you know, they, they kind of take on the shape of, say, a, a vessel with a head 
more than what we recognize as a human body. So this is all a long way of asking, how have you thought through how to or whether to sex your human forms? So I'm focusing when I'm working on my intention, right? Like I'm keeping my intention in my direct focus. I try to exclude things that don't matter. And oftentimes gender is really heavy and it it comes with a lot of weight and a lot of obviously a lot of preconceived notions. And so if I'm not talking specifically about the experience of being a specific gender, then I'm going to leave it out, right? Because I'm trying to get to something else. And if it be if the piece is gendered and it's it becomes exclusive or particular to a certain conversation, that's not where I'm going or what I want to be talking about. So like hair. <laughs> Oftentimes I don't include hair or arms. Oh, that's 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 really interesting. And when I when I think of the work and say the Boston show, for example, that makes a lot of sense. And we will talk as we go along about some of the ways, some of the things you add to figures that address specific ideas. But two more things about the way you build your bodies before we move along. I wonder why you like clay and continue to use clay, because I think you've probably reached the success level where you could literally use any material. You, You have the means to use any material you want. Yeah, I choose clay because of the way it records emotion, the way it records intentionality. It is so specific and intimate. And there's, you know, I've experienced, you know, different materials and I really enjoy metal. I really enjoy, I got to play with wood last year, use, you know, different materials. I depend a lot on metal as a sort of structural components, et cetera. But the clay itself is vital to what I'm trying to say. And because it records that, that intention or that this energetic space that I'm in when I'm creating that work, it's so important to return to. It's also, you know, I often forget that there's a long sort of genetic relationship to clay that watching my mom work in clay and my great aunts and my aunts and the people in my family, my grandma was a potter, my great grandma was a potter and so on and so forth, that I feel like I forget that there's an ancestral relationship to clay. So it's almost like I'm continuing forward on my life path with someone really familiar. And it's an easy relationship. It's a comfortable one. And so I think it's not, it's not just that the material reacts and performs in the way that I want it to, but it's actually, I really believe that what clay offers is actually vital to the change that I want to make in the world or the prayers that I see transform our reality. I mentioned that a lot of your works feature the body. A lot of your works, most of your works feature clay. Kind of the third component that's fairly constant is how you treat the eyes of your figures. How do you think through how you represent eyes? That's an interesting one because, you know, there's there's lots of ways to look at it. And my mom actually does her eyes differently in her work. And so one would think that I would have learned to do it the way she does it and then and then continue that sort of tradition that she started. But there's something about I think it actually started from making smaller work where detail was was more difficult. So eyes became more 
just these sort of vacant spaces that were filled with that you one would fill with that intention of 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 sight and also i think about the fact that we objectify the world and we often forget that that we're in relationship with all things like i'm not just looking at this tree this tree is also uh, aware of me and that when we give sight back to the things around us we act differently in the world and we might we might be a little bit more self-aware or careful less sloppy because when we're when we feel seen and there there's it's not just out of fear but also love like there's this there's this full witness of self that that happens when we stop objectifying our world and so i think my work sort of stands in quite literally as that witness and those pieces are there to witness so there is a reciprocal witness when one looks at the work the work is also looking at you and as a vessel you know this is a clay form with walls and a hollow space within and that hollow space is a vessel of intention and that intention is also aware of you so i think that kind of lays out three things that are pretty constant across much of your practice and i want to broaden out into some of the thematic addresses toward which you've built. And one of them is apocalypse. Since at least the early 2010s or so, you've referenced apocalypse in works like your 2013 Denver Art Museum performance, in which you constructed costumes for what you've called, quote, post-apocalyptic indigenous warriors, and then you, you you literally led, like physically led as a performance, these post-apocalyptic indigenous warriors to the museum to go see your work, which was a simultaneous act, of course, of persistence and resistance. And kind of references to the apocalypse is there in your sculpture, too, including what I think is the earliest work in the ICA Boston presentation, 2014's Directed South. What about apocalypse as a concept or as a theme attracted you? I grew up in a permaculture school, basically. So my mom and my stepdad had an institute called Flowering Tree Permaculture Institute, which is still active. But as a kid, I was, you know, in the 80s, I was aware of our environmental situation. And I was deeply sort of aware of, of this impending doom or this impending apocalypse. And it was a source of a lot of fear, but it was also this deep sense of excitement and freedom. And as I got older and, and realizing, you know, the sense of apocalypse that happens, that is, that is happening every day, that there is this ending, this constant ending and this, and this perpetual beginning, like you said, this like resistance and persistence, this breathing that happens in life. And also, you know, I just read on the news the other day this where this last person in a tribe of the Amazon was found in his demise. And, and that being heartbreaking, heart heartbreaking and thinking of the apocalypses, you know, indigenous people are living in a post-apocalyptic apocalyptic experience right now. That we are surviving in a new world, in a world that is unfamiliar to our ancestral you know, patterning and, and comfort or, or stability. So we are being every single day that we wake up in this colonized world is, is a moment of survival and innovation, right? And I think that I was aware of that as a kid. I was aware of, of the difficulty of, the, of living in a world 
being aware of other realities and and they're not being in our larger social consciousness. And so I think I've I've returned to the idea of of apocalypse uh, multiple times. Not only you know being obsessed with post-apocalyptic theory, like how do different artists look at what that looks like to them, and how how is post-apocalyptic theory kind of tossed around from Mad Max to Waterworld to The Road to you know what I mean? Like there's so many ways of looking at it. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of I find a lot of innovation in it, and I f- I find that I'm really excited for this idea that the things that we are take for granted and we expect to be normalized would end, would be. I, I look forward to the moment when the challenges transform and innovation is and creativity and, and the simplicity of survival becomes less sort of ethereal and conceptual and, and, and much more grounded and realistic. And, and um, because I grew up growing our own food and living without electricity, et cetera, I know how nourishing that can be. And I also know how frustrating it was to be a kid without TV and without, you know, walking around with candles instead of lights and and how hard it is to grow a field of beans or how much I hated wheat after we grew wheat a season and we got like two loaves of bread and I didn't like them and how you eat your pets, et cetera. And so I, you know, I, I feel, I feel privileged now to have, have been given that perspective of sustainability and also that relationship to, you know, spirituality and the relationship I have to my ancestral community, which offers, you know, that whole perspective. And so I think I'm, my work has been about finding peace in an end so that there is room for a beginning. Are there ways in which you're interested in migrating what you're describing as a specific understanding of apocalypse, one rooted in native knowledge and experience, to climate change? I think because of my mom's work with the Permaculture Institute, I was well, well aware of the relationship between indigenous life ways and relationships to land and our our, and our climate catastrophe that we're facing because actually sustainable living systems and holistic environmental practices were is actually cultural preservation right so learning to live in relationship with the land and being aware of our extraction and our Uh, relationship to what the objectification of material objects, which leads us to abuse our earth and our quote unquote resources. But I would say, you know, our, our gifts, the gifts that were given to keep us here. When we're aware of those things, I think we're, you know, for, for me myself, I've noticed that when we become conscious of, of our relationship to the place we're actually just starting to live back into our ancestral living life ways and living systems. So our ancestors already knew this stuff, that it was embedded in the language, how you interact with the natural world, which is also you. It's not separate from you. And that when you're in relationship to all things, you're inherently going to act differently around them. And so I think it really is connected that, you know, cultural preservation and uh trying to remember and this actually goes full circle back to um spirituality because it from what my experience of my relationship to culture and what I've learned from being a person 
who's a part of a community, is that spirituality is imbued in everything that you do. And the consciousness of the supernatural, of holistic responsibility, not just on the third dimension, but other dimensions, is a constant. And I think that that is reflected uh, really clearly in our relationship to our natural world. Appreciating that no is a very good answer. Does it matter to you that apocalypse is significant in the Christian tradition, and especially now in 2022 among fundamentalist Christians in the United States? I'm not going to lie to you. I don't know very much about Christianity. I've sort of tiptoed the edges of it. I had a great grandpa who was a Baptist preacher. And because of it, a lot of my family resisted Christianity. Um, My mom was one of them and chose to raise my brother and myself pretty strictly in our traditional ancestral spiritual sort of belief systems. And so my understanding of Christianity really is from as an outsider. And so I have a really funny, I I don't have a lot of information about it. And so I have a, a really kind of simplistic and skewed version of of what I understand uh, Christian belief systems to be. I have um, many friends who are Rastafarians, actually, and I have a lot of respect for some of the belief systems and processes that they inhabit. So (laughs) I have to admit my naivety around the question. Well, one reason I ask is because you live and work in northern New Mexico, which is a land that has that is has has a very layered you know history over the last five hundred years. You know, there's obviously native history. There is settler colonialism of both the Spanish and United States sort, and of course, northern New Mexico was a key trade route into and out of and through Mexico too. And your work very often manages to, in single works, reference and address those layers. And and hence, I was wondering if apocalypse was one of the one of the ways you were addressing those layers. There, there are a couple of works you've made in which you reference, and maybe not address, but reference the Christian tradition. A work called Genesis Squared from 2019, which is a mother and child squared, <laughs> if you will. We'll have an image on manpodcast.com. And then a work from, I think another work from 2019 called Tonansin. 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 Yeah. So those are a couple of works in which you were maybe with a title and maybe not, and, and, and definitely with the Virgin of Guadalupe form, interested in kind of standing next to Christian forms and phrases and constructs. And I guess this is all a long way of asking what about walking up to them in those works in 2019 and then in 2021 was of interest? I have a master's degree in creative nonfiction, and I'm always caught by words and how limiting the English language is to express. <laughs> I relate to this. Ex- <laughs> you know, to express like the psychological, spiritual world, you know, and I'm, I'm always I feel so limited often by what words I have to use to explain those experiences. And I've looked, I've looked for those words. I've looked for, what do you call this, right? What do you call this ending in the beginning? And and because the colonized language, is, it comes from, a, a, you know, Europe, where <laughs> English, it came with it. You know, these are the words that were given in a sense. So, for instance, like Genesis and the idea of that 
sort of transformation or that that um the blessing in a sense which are which are words that we use to try to explain uh spirituality in different avenues of spirituality but like for instance the piece Donantin, which i made for a group show that was based on depictions of la virgen de guadalupe who is basically one of the main spiritual figures in my area so you know i grew up in in northern new mexico um near you know our adjacent town is española which is the lower edad capital of the world and also has a really long history of you know the conquistadors that came through to to really brutally colonize and we have a, a old history with the spanish colonizers but also you know the second layer of colonization which was american culture and because the hispanic culture is very old here in this area we've coexisted for centuries there is something you know that we've char- shared and traded and we learn to coexist or to not be you know murdered by having our our feasts and our ceremonies on their saints days in order to hide our hide our prayers inside the christian faith But when you grow up even though I wasn't raised in the church I was raised around all this imagery and one of the main things that I'm always caught by is in the southwest there will be this really big virgen de guadalupe big sculpture big painting big image of this nurturing mother who's glowing and surrounded by flowers and then there's this little tiny jesus to the side maybe you know and I was always caught by by this idea of like this this mother who was worshiped and and became the the main altar in this area and so i started looking at at la virgen de guadalupe who is that who was expressed in our community and she was a you know a, a marian apparition that was seen by i think it was a nahuatl person in in central america who then and and this uh, marian apparition you know told this indigenous person you know that there was within the christian faith there was it was going to be okay basically and that's how so it was a it, she was this relationship between indigenous and colonizer forces but actually i believe was a mother who was who was providing an entrance to spirituality that didn't have to be as destructive as i think a patriarchal system might be and so when i see this mother around i see the history of indigenous people learning to survive in the depths of colonization and genocide and it's complicated it's always really complicated but i was you know researching that history of indigenous expression and adaptation of spiritual belief systems that i really felt like donancin being this like goddess this ancestral goddess and this indigenous person and the one that i made for the show was to rem- remind that this image was actually initially an indigenous goddess or mother divine feminine divine will that she was holding medicine she's holding the clay she is in, in her hands right in her hands and she's covered in depictions of osha beruk flowers which is a medicinal flower found in this area. And that being like we don't have to simplify our it's not black or white, you know. We it, it's it's very complicated and our histories are so intertwined and and complex. And I'm always looking for 
you know, yes, there's a lot of pain. Yes, there's a lot of fear. Yes, there's been so much abuse. And there's still connection. There's still, we still, you know, one of my friends said recently, we still got to live with each other. You know, we're here in this valley. We come from this long history. And we're actually dealing with a new layer of colonization with some um, gentrification. And how do we, how do we find our common our common places and remember that what we have in common might be our our power of prayer to this mother. Yeah, no, I think I think people and peoples who have historically been acted upon by a dominant culture understand complication and the complication of history a lot better than people who were raised within the dominant culture. You know, which in my experience of course is white people. You were just talking about resistance and persistence and survival, which brings me to your 2019 sculpture, In Memorial, Genocide Makes It Complicated, which is a work I found myself thinking about a lot over the last year or two. What What is the complication you're addressing? Seeing, uh, we'll, we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com, and I think the complication is pretty obvious if you're standing in front of the sculpture. But for the purposes of audio, <laughs> what is the complication you're addressing and how did you manifest it in three dimensions? Oh, that that's a hard one for me because it's heavy. And it's about honestly finding love and partnership when you're post-apocalyptic indigenous person living in a post-colonial stress disorder situation and, and you basically you have to save your species. And it's and it's complicated because you can't just like Nah, it doesn't matter. Like I, you know, there's only a few of us left and there's only so many who speak our language and only so many of us who remember and participate and and carry on those traditions. And every time you find partnership outside of a community, you are personally responsible for the loss of culture for that, because when you don't have two parents that are that are building and supporting wholeheartedly that entire life way you're part of that falling apart and I can't seem to get rid of that that heartbreak it's something I carry as I realize I am I am (laughs) what happens when you are an endangered species and you have to find you know it's up to you it's in your hands your ancestors drop this responsibility right in your hands and you're standing there looking at this thinking how do i find partnership and and potentially bring life into this world with our ancestral knowledge in our ancestral homelands in relationship to life ways and language and culture and yet we're all you know, post-colonial stress disorder, we're all carrying our traumas around this experience. And so, A, the pool is small, then B, the pool is really hurting. And C, how do you heal yourself enough to be present and conscious and and caring enough to another person who's who's navigating a similar experience? And in the end, the, I think it's called a memorial because sometimes I feel like I have to let go and mourn the loss of something rather than fight to keep it going because it feels very hopeless. It's a sculpture in which the top 40% is two sculpted human forms looking or almost looking at each other, and they are separated from the bottom 60% of the form by the top of a rectangular box-like form. 
in which two similar forms are cut out, so they are negative. So you have the positive forms on top and the forms in absentia, negative forms below. And then there's a base of the sculpture in which, you know, stuff sits. What is the stuff? <laughs> I see stones from here, stones from, from this place. This is the foundation of this heartbreak is place. It's actually this ancestral homeland that we inhabit and have relationship to. It's a sculpture that references land and landscape in a completely different way than the American landscape tradition references what white people think of as their land, United States land, a tradition that emerged in, of course, the 1830s and 40s. And yeah, that's always just kind of, that's, I've thought about that part of that work a lot lately. We've been talking about kind of figures that are, that are almost allegorical, not quite metaphorical, but definitely allegorical. But you have sometimes been far more specific, such as in a 2016 work that you have titled as a self-portrait. And it's a work that joins two of your interests that could have been and stayed separate, but you have found ways to bring them together in, in your practice. What, what are those two interests and what does that work show? <laughs> <laughs> I love cars. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm obsessed with the vessel, the empowered vessel, whether that be ourself or a tool to be an empowered vessel. And I see cars as beings like we've talked about objectification. They are these characters and these beings that we build relationship with. And I have found immense freedom and immense, you know, a deep relationship with cars in my life. And it comes, you know, partly from being a part of a, a, a car, a deeply rooted car community, but also has history and trauma and freedom and me being having the deep need to be self-sufficient. And so buying a car at a very young age and it was always breaking down. So I was always fixing it and being able to fix the car and at 13, 14 years old and be able to escape bad situations for me was really empowering or, or, you know, <laughs> drive myself right into really bad ones. <laughs> but I've related deeply to the vehicle. And I think uh, when I was young, I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to fly planes, specifically <laughs> fighter planes. So not like commercial airlines, but like fast planes. <laughs> and I think I uh, found that freedom and that speed in cars. So but the piece that you talk about is a self-portrait, and it's actually me pregnant. So in 2016, I was... Let me, can I, can I jump in for just a second? It's you pregnant, but it's also you as a car. Yes, I am a, a V8 engine that is that is actually building a baby. <laughs> so not only is it a figure in clay, it's a V8 engine, and it's a, it's becoming a mother. So there's there's lots of sort of <laughs> things that you don't necessarily put together all the time. But um, when I was pregnant, it was really a, a really amazing feeling because there's this brain that you feel like is you. But then there's this body who's doing this magical thing that I I couldn't even comprehend how I was creating this being, this person. And I had this visualization when I was pregnant of like, a 69 Chevelle. Oh, a Chevelle. A Chevelle. It had to be a Chevelle then. A 69 Chevelle going like 100 miles an hour 
down this road that's straight through the desert, right? And this is my body. Like, yeah, my body was a 69 Chevelle. And my brain was a deflated yellow balloon tied to the rear bumper. And that was where the idea of the sculpture came from because it was like, it was like my body's doing this thing that I have absolutely no control over. And it's, and I was feeling really impressed, but also, you know, terrified of, of the power that I was learning my body had. And so um, naturally I built a sculpture, a self-portrait and I don't, you know, most things I make are self-portraits, but I don't label them as such. And so I feel like everything is empathic response to something, right? But this one was very specifically a self-portrait where I built the shoulders into a V8 engine. And then the stomach has a little baby and there's these like wires that are attached to it that I think go to the alternator. (laughs) There's like a little clay alternator and like... I made the fan, I fabricated the fan, and it actually has a a belt <laughs> that runs through this little clay alternator. And then she's kind of wearing these like pilot goggles, and she's looking up, and she's inhaling. And so her inhale is like the, the air intake, you know. The, the goggles are above her eyes, so we can still see her eyes, which are closed or almost closed. Yeah, she's definitely a pilot on an adventure, but she is she is the she is the motor, and it's kind of cool because all the like little caps come off, the head come off. It's like kind of cool. So speaking of cars and appreciating that there are two different answers to the question I'm about to ask, who is Maria? Oh, Maria is someone I'm, and I've I've had a relationship for a long time. <laughs> She is a 1985 Chevy El Camino that I've painted uh, black on black, like the traditional style pottery from the area. So I threw a hot rod black, which is a satin, and then I taped it off and threw a clear to make to mimic the black on black pottery style from this area, which was initially made popular by Maria Martinez, a potter from our neighboring Tewa tribe of San Aldofonso Pueblo. Yeah, she's got a 410 horsepower 360, a Tremec TKO drag race transmission, and she's a she's a character. She really is. You you have used Maria in performances before, such as in the 2013 Denver Art Museum performance we talked about a, a, a few moments ago, and 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 Maria has been installed in museum exhibitions, you know, in that museum-y way, you know, up on a on a white painted riser you know, it's something that, you know, you stand apart from and look at and are not allowed to touch. But so just just to make sure that I understand and that we all understand, like, you could take Maria out for a spin tomorrow, right? Yeah, she doesn't break down on me. <laughs> <laughs> so she's a so she's a, 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 a sculpture and functional uh, all at the same time. Yeah, you know what, if I take her to the grocery store, she'll be fine. But if I have to take her to a car show, she'll definitely break down. <laughs> it's like clockwork. So what brought you to migrate a ceramics-rooted process to a Chevy El Camino? I mean, I can understand a context in which that would seem ridiculous. But to see the object, it seems totally logical. And strangely enough, our journey takes us to a small classroom in Providence, Rhode Island with a teacher named Yoriko Saito, 
who taught this seminar called Everyday Aesthetics, Aesthetics of the Everyday, where we studied Nicholas Bouriard's relational aesthetics. And we also talked in depth about culture and aesthetic and applied aesthetic. And it was probably one of the most influential classes that I took at RISD doing my master's in ceramics in about 2010, is my guess, because I started understanding more deeply indigenous aesthetics and that being applied to all things, right? So it's not separate from life, it never was. And I realized that that part of that was growing up in a town where that where that applied aesthetics was super important, that being Española, the lowrider capital of the world, where as a kid, my mom had a 1952 Willys pickup and me and my brother, there's no room in the front for kids. So me and my brother would sit in the back and we'd drive through town and I would see all these beautiful cars, right? So like on a weekend, a Sunday morning, a Friday night, all the lowriders would be out and all these custom cars. And there was all this pride in this aesthetic moment. And when I realized that this was an important part of my life and my aesthetic, was my relationship to cars and that being cultural, right? So that being, we have relational aesthetics as an aesthetic experience, an empowered aesthetic experience. And so naturally, I came home from RISD and I went back to school for automotive science at Northern New Mexico College, had an automotive science program in auto body, specifically collision repair and lowrider building, classic car customization. And so I started, I needed to go there. I needed to make that car. I had this vision of making that car that felt like that empowered vessel. When I went from point A to point B, I was having a deeply aesthetic experience. I was reminded why we're here and that we can apply that aesthetic experience to everything that we do. And so I went to school to learn to paint cars. In that program, I had several projects, but I got the Chevy El Camino as I wanted the drivetrain for a Buick project. So I found that car on the side of the road for sale and I bought it to swap out the drivetrain for a Buick and to put a Chevy drivetrain in a Buick. Um, those who work on cars will know exactly why. <laughs> yeah, yes, but it also is like part of this layering thing you do in work right. after work, right? I mean, like it conceptually fits your practice. Right. Yeah. So naturally, I had a, a 68 Buick Skylark that had no drivetrain and finding a, a Buick drivetrain was going to be difficult. So I, I got the Chevy El Camino for the engine and transmission and I thought I would. It was sideswiped and smashed in the back. So I figured I'd do all the body work on it and, and flip it. And I ended up liking it. <laughs> and I ended up, it was actually one day we were in the yard and it was harvest time. My mom really didn't like it. She was like, that thing's hideous. It's like a spork, you know? <laughs> she, she, she didn't like it before or after you'd worked on it? She doesn't, my mom didn't like El Caminos just period, no, right? Any right. 80s is car for, for and then an El Camino, no. And there I had this ugly thing sitting in the yard. I had a lot of projects, but that was one of them. And she was like, let's use that thing and go harvest our, our garden because we had to go harvest the corn and the squash and the beans, etc. And so because it was so low and it had this open bed, we just drove it out into the field and the kids could fill the, the trunk up, the bed up with the corn and the squash and whatever we had for harvest that year. And that was an aha moment because I realized it was a vessel. It was a pot. It was our traditional harvesting tool right now. And I was like, I'm going to paint it like a pot because it became this vessel. And then my mom, you know, in, in, and her validation and her 
awareness of its importance was also was of its importance was also important to me to see like oh wow this is like a functional thing in our community and now I can honor that and make it a pot because long time ago we used to carry pots on our heads to get water from the creek and we used to use pottery for harvest for cooking for ceremony and here we are as modern day indigenous people and what are our vessels how do we harvest and how do we honor those in the same ways that we have in the past honored vessels, which would be adorn them with that spiritual patterning? Are there techniques or moves that you learned in working on autos or auto bodies that you've migrated to your handling of clay? I, I suppose so, yeah. Um, I think welding. I mean, I knew how to weld. My dad taught me to weld, but I knew how to weld. But I got a lot better at welding when I was doing auto body. And so I weld a lot to build the internal pieces. Also, you know, auto body is about hiding things, really, and doing it quality, right? So not using too much mud, which is what we call body filler, bondo. So doing a lot of metal work so that you're not using any, any bondo before you throw paint. But hiding those seams and like with clay, your kiln is only so big, so you can only make the pieces as big as your kiln. So I'm oftentimes figuring out how to hide seams. But because of my, I used to do what my mom does, which is when she needs to hide a seam in her clay, she uses PC7 epoxy to hold the pieces together. And then she would use auto body filler, bondo, and she would She'd put it on and sand it down and then spray paint it, rattle can paint it to hide those seams between the clay pieces. But because of a history of sleeping, eating, being in spray paint 24-7, 365 for a chunk of my life, I'm very sensitive to spray paint at this point. And so I have to figure out different ways of hiding seams. So I think, I mean, there's so much because my work is so much also about taking things as they are and accepting it for its process. And, and I've been working on like, how do you show those seams? And how do you honor those seams? And how do you honor every single part of that process? And, and you know, with cars, it's so much about how do you make it look slick and smooth and hide all this stuff, right? And so I guess I'm always kind of, I find balance between, in, in the space between slick and intuitive. Like if it's too slop- intuitive, it's, it could be too sloppy and there has to be a moment of control and, and smooth and pleasing to the eye. And then also allowing the process, the, the, the natural, I guess, uh, way of doing things and, and, you know, what isn't perfect about us to be seen so that there's acceptance. But how do we hold those both in balance? And I think the car's help me do that because I, I still love really clean graphic design. I do my drawings are generally pretty clean, but my sculpting is, is very uh, intuitive. Let's transition from artworks of yours that move to a, a recent work that is fixed in the earth and isn't going anywhere for like another year. It's a work that is at Field Farm in Williamstown, Massachusetts, which is a trustees site in Western Mass. And the work is called Counterculture. And it features, just a really quick description, 12 figures fixed in the ground. They're concrete rather than clay. They're different colors. They're all facing the same direction. They're human referencing without 
necessarily being people. They wear different neckwear. They all face the same direction. And the eyes are specific in ways we'll get to in a moment. So before we talk about this work, which again is in Williamstown, Massachusetts, where was the work originally planned for and how did you originally conceive of the work existing within that that place? Just to back up a little bit, this work was a collaboration with the curator, Jamie Lee Lacey. And Jamie Lee, we had already begun conversation about a public art piece, a proposal for the trustees pre-pandemic. And then the pandemic hit and we were approved to make this piece, but we had to find out you know, where to put it. And one of the available spaces was this place called the Plantation near Plymouth Rock. And virtually, we decided to put the work there. And so the initial idea was around why we do what we do, why we make the decisions we make, and that being, you know, especially unconscious colonization, I think in that specific regard. And so I wanted to create a line of ancestors that were looking out over the water to ask that question, you know, to say, you're being seen. What are you, what are you doing? Why are you making those decisions? And the longer I sat with that, I realized that the narrative was too specific and that it was, it was holding me sort of in a corner conceptually because it, it really isn't, you're bad, we're good, this is the story. It's about every single one of us are, are are not remembering some serious things that we need to be aware of. And it doesn't, you know, there there are heavy histories all over this planet, actually, and speci- especially this country, that we need to be aware of, and that there are ancestors all over who are, I believe, still sort of aware and watching. And there are beings, there are we're constantly in relationship to the natural world and and we often forget that we are we're even a part of that family you know and so there was actually a boundary made by the people of that area the Wampanoag Narragansett I believe that they didn't want me to make the work there which made so much sense you know I'm like if if any native person is going to make a piece of work around that complicated history it should be one of them to start with you know that is an experience that is deeply personal to their their space and their ancestral homelands and the stories that they carry to this day. And so we gladly relocated to the field farm, which actually happened to be near, it's about 15 minutes from Masmoka, uh, maybe a little further. And I had a work there already, so I was kind of caught by my work and how it kind of circles around specific areas. So there I was back in the Berkshires, I think is what it's called, right? In those mountains. And then, you know, looking for a relationship to the to the people of that area and the curator, because I really wanted to make, find some clay from that area and actually make beads for the necklaces that the pieces were going to wear with the people whose relationship is to that place who have been relocated. And so the curators reached out to the people of the area, which is Stockbridge, Muncie, Band of Mohicans, and are now in, I believe, Wisconsin. And turns out that I went to school with their their cultural history, cultural Asian program person. So we had this really amazing, it, it felt right, right? Like there was so many things that kind of fell into place where it was like, no, this is where you're supposed to be if you just listen. 
And yes, that's also part of that, like, hey, find the natural flow and try and and be aware of it. And like, just listen. If you just listen for a while, you'll find which way to go and it will be right. And I feel like the piece was transformational in so many ways for me because we had to figure out how to create this piece across country because I wasn't traveling to New England to make the piece. And so I had to engineer sort of how do I maintain my hand? Because I'm really, I'm really worried about me losing my hand in my work, that my work really has to have the intimacy of my hand in it. And how do I get help or outsource parts of fabrication to other people and still feel like my vision is, is being fulfilled? And I think this piece built a whole new neural pathway in me that said, no, this, is, this can work. You don't have to grind yourself to a pulp working day and night to have your vision manifest like you can build a creative community to make your vision come true. Could you describe how you made the eyes on counterculture and what happens? So the original concept was that the eyes, like we were talking about before, with the eyes being sort of that which watches. But because these are solid, they're not hollow clay forms. They're actually concrete and they're dyed concrete and That was a decision to be sort of conscious of the natural space. But the eyes would go all the way through. So they were thin enough forms that the eyes could go through the head so that you actually saw light through the eyes. And that being the sky, whether you saw the trees, whether there was a bird back there, that there is that which is has been objectified, has the consciousness to see. And in a sense, if we need a physical human form to believe that, then I will make that and we will stand there and we will have this moment of awareness of that reciprocal seeing. And the cool part is, you know, I I wanted so badly for my hand to be on these pieces and I sent the originals to New York to the sculpture house where they cast them in cement and sent them to the field farm and I got to go help install them and put the necklaces on them. And when I got there, the eyes didn't go through. And there was this moment where it was like, I guess part of their casting process, they didn't make the eyes go through all the way. And that was so important to my my intention of the piece, right? And I remember sitting with it and I was like, I have to make those eyes go through. And so um, me and um, one of the wonderful workers for the trustees stood on these like 12 foot ladders, 10 foot ladders with diamond bits and drilled. It took us like six or seven hours. We drilled the holes out on each and every single one of them, listening to like our music from high school and laughing and making jokes in the hot sun. And I realized it had to be me to wake them up. Like I had to go do that. I couldn't outsource that. There's some things that I have to be the one to do. And so I felt super, super grateful that that accident happened because it was really important that I had to do that. I had to go do that. It seems possible that there is a relationship between the Moai, the stone monoliths on Eastern on Easter Island, and, and counterculture. Is there? There wasn't initially. I am now starting to realize that (laughs) that wasn't the initial inspiration that's for sure but I have a recent interest in them because of actually experiencing my work 
So I went out there and I was like, wow, this is really intense and powerful. And just being in this presence is amazing. And then I started looking at those sort of silent figures that, that hold space, you know, through history. And I'm just really caught by it. I was uh, told my cousin, I ran into my cousin here in um, in town and he was all, what are you working on? And I showed him a picture of him and he was all, dang, Rose Hinge. <laughs> 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 so now my family saw. Oh, that's good. <laughs> okay, Rose Hinge. <laughs> I know. I saw G. <laughs> that's what family's for to pick on you, especially older cousins. You need Rose Hinge T-shirts. Rose Hinge, dang Rose Hinge. <laughs> that's awesome. And finally, before we wrap up here, about a month after we're taping this, you will have an exhibition open at Fabric Workshop in in Philadelphia. What will that show include? This is super, super, super exciting for me. I've been working with the Fabric Workshop for about two years now, and we're wrapping up and finishing up this exhibition that we're calling Dream House. And Abby Lutz, the person that I've been working with, has been really just supporting me to create the space that is about envisioning sort of an architectural example of sort of my internal workings and my prayers. And there'll be several rooms that you can look into and then one that you'll be able to access and inhabit. And I think it's basically one of my most specific artist statements I've ever made. And it's exciting because I'm returning to the figure as myself rather than actually creating these figures out of clay and installation provides that opportunity of projecting oneself into a space and actually experiencing that transformational moment firsthand. Rose B. Simpson, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Taylor. The Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia presents Infinity on the Horizon, an exhibition that brings attention to the power art has to influence our understanding of the environment. Open through December 31st, it features modern and contemporary objects in the museum's permanent collection, including art by Georgia O'Keeffe, Elaine de Kooning, and Richard Mayhew. Foregrounding female, black, indigenous, and queer perspectives, it underscores how abstraction as an artistic strategy can expand our understanding of the landscapes around us. Visit georgiamuseum.org for more information about Infinity on the Horizon, or visit athensga.com to plan a trip. Women Painting Women, on view May 15th through September 25th at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Women Painting Women features 46 female artists who choose women as subject matter in their works. This presentation, international in scope, includes evocative portraits that span the late 1960s to the present. All place women, their bodies, gestures, and individuality at the forefront, conceiving new ways to activate and elaborate on the portrayal of women. The artists highlighted in the exhibition use painting and women as subject matter and range from early trailblazers like Alice Neal and Emma Amos to emerging artists such as Jordan Castile and Apollonia Sokol. Women painting women at the modern through September 25th. Welcome back. 
I bet that you know that Carlton Watkins motivated the invention of the National Park at Yosemite during the Civil War. And you probably know that Thomas Moran was crucial to the subsequent preservation of Yellowstone as the second national park. But do you know about George Massa and his influence on America's most popular park, Great Smoky Mountains? My next guest, Brent Martin, joins me to discuss his new book, George Massa's Wild Vision, which was recently published by Hub City Press. Massa was an Asheville, North Carolina-based photographer who had a significant impact on the establishment of Great Smoky Mountains National Park and on determining the southern route of the Appalachian Trail, the two crown jewels of the eastern United States' natural infrastructure. Amazon and IndieBound offer the book for around $25. Brent Martin, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. George Massa was as important, or at least nearly as important, to the creation of America's most popular national park as Carlton Watkins was to the creation of the first one at Yosemite, or as Thomas Moran was to the second one 10 years later at Yellowstone. Massa was important in a different way to be sure, as the, as the 1920s and 30s were not the 1860s, but, but I think pretty much just as important. So who was he? And how did he come to live in the Western North Carolina mountains, or at least as much as we know why he, he came to Asheville? Yeah, those are questions that are difficult to answer because there's so little known about George Massa's life before arriving in Asheville in 1915. The earliest record found on George Massa is from 1907, an ad placed in the San Francisco call, which we can only assume that is George Massa. He did tell friends in Asheville that he came into the country in 1905, 1906. He gave different dates, different times, but you know, it's fairly safe to assume that that was Massa you know, placing this ad in the San Francisco call. And there's just this big gap. He comes to Asheville in 1915 with some Austrian friends that he'd met in California, we're assuming, but that was just sort of anecdotal from Massa. He got a job at the Grove Park Inn. He had traveled to Asheville via St. Louis and New Orleans. Was he looking for work there potentially? Or was he looking for a new place to land? Regardless, he ends up in Asheville in 1915 working for the Grove Park Inn, which listeners probably aren't too familiar with that place unless they also spent some time in Asheville. It's just a big historic inn. And when Massa arrived, it was a highly popular place for tourists. And he worked as a bellhop for a couple of years. His interest in photography, people knew him. He was interested in photography during that period. He was snapping photographs. He left Asheville in 1917 and, and traveled out west, different places, Colorado, dabbling in what he thought might be a career in engineering or photography, returned to the Grove Park Inn in 1917. He was a copious journalist as far as personal journals and note-taking. And Fred Loring Seeley, who was the manager of the Grove Park Inn, actually reported Massa as a spy to the FBI as a potential spy. There were anti-immigration, Asian anti-immigration acts been passed starting in 1905 in California. So World War One. who knows what Massa was facing personally with those types of acts being passed. But there's a gap. We don't really know what happened and what he did between 1907 when that ad was placed to 1915. Prior to that, we don't know what he did any nothing really relatively nothing about his life he wrote conflicting birth records he was born masahara izuka and, and changed his name to george masa upon arrival he gave 1881 as a birth date 1885 as a birth date 1890 he uh, most commonly gave it as 1881 when he died in 1933 most of his friends in the carolina mountain club said he was probably around 
50 years old. So he's a mystery. <laughs> Do we know how he became interested in photography? No. People who were close to Massa, they suspected that Massa had, had training and had had some formal exposure to photography, but there's nothing established about his past with that endeavor. And, you know, I speculate in the book that Massa would have been around photography as it was developing in, in Japan in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Photography was becoming somewhat of a phenomenon in Japan at the time. So perhaps Massa had some training in Japan and that was something that he had just brought along with him to this, to this country and really kind of saw it as a path for himself. And as a way forward, he was ambitious. And when he does take photography on, he takes it on seriously and in a very professional way. And his you know, departure from the Grove Park Inn really was to become a commercial photographer. And when you think about that departure in about 1919, in that era when he worked with the Creaseman family in Asheville and started Plateau Studios, and you know, it was a pretty meteoritic success story uh, over a decade of his life, which would, would have put him somewhere close to 40 at that point. And to think that in that brief window of time, he became the photographer for the Asheville Chamber of Commerce, Mount Mitchell State Park. He hired him as a promoter. The town of Highlands here in Macon County, where I live, hired Massa as a, as a promotional photographer. He worked for the New York Times. Photographing uh, John D. Rockefeller, no less. Photographing <laughs> John D. Rockefeller, sending his images off to Calvin Coolidge and wanting Coolidge to, to use his, using his images as a way to try and convince Coolidge that Smokies needed national park status. He became somewhat ubiquitous in this landscape with photography. So it's, it's an amazing story in the sense that if he hadn't had photography back a background in photography and had been trained in photography and to think that he was in a country that where he was not a citizen or had not grown up or been familiar with the culture, his life, his entire life. It's a, it's a pretty amazing art statement <laughs> can, can morph into what they choose to morph into with the right amount of discipline and vision. So as Massa starts photographing the Southern Appalachians writ large, I guess today we know him best for the Smokies, but he was involved in the extension and development of the Appalachian Trail. He was involved in what became Mount Mitchell State Park. I mean, basically, if there were mountains and trees in the Southern Appalachians, he had a lens in it. What were the challenges of photographing the region in the 1920s and 30s? Keeping in mind that, you know, he's doing it with an 8x10 camera and, you know, roads aren't paved. I mean, what, what would that have been like? And what does that tell us about how kind of intent he was about all of it? Well, it was a fairly remote landscape. It was a landscape that was an incredible transition the national forest system here in the East had only been established in 1911. One of the biggest purchases in this landscape was from the Vanderbilt family in 1916, which added about a hundred thousand acres to the national forest system. But the rest of the landscape and the significant amount of the landscape was being heavily logged. Railroads were being punched in 
to log. Uh, the Smokies were being logged. The Park Service, of course, was at that point, there was no National Park movement within the Park Service. So that landscape was very much under siege. There were tracks that were being protected by the Forest Service while Massa was here. And he would have been roaming that, that landscape when he was in search of a route for the Appalachian Trail. But that would have been a, a very rough landscape to traverse. And you know, this is another subject altogether, but <laughs> this landscape is loaded, of course, with ancient trails that have been on on it for millennia by Native people. So a lot of the Appalachian Trail, for example, follows what World Ridgeline trails that have been in place for a long time. But he would have been crawling through a lot of rhododendron and doing a lot of really crazy bushwhacks, probably through landscapes that had been heavily cut over. The Mount Mitchell landscape, for example, that he photographed in the early 20s was just a race against time. It was, you know, it was interesting to look at massa images of the Mount Mitchell landscape. And he included those photographs that were of hideous landscapes that had been clear cut by Pearlie and Crockett, while at the same time contrasting those with these majestic, you know, magical capturing of light, you know, in the blacks during just, you know, perfect patience, I'm sure, to get those shots. You know, so it was a landscape really in transition. One of the photographs that really struck me about Mass's time here in the county where I live, and he was here more than just, you know, for this particular project, but when the town of Highlands hired him to promote, you know, to create a promotional brochure for that town. He was here when the Colossasia Gorge, which is just one of the most drop-dead, awe-inspiring gorges anywhere around here in these mountains, and there was no road in it at the time. When he was here in 1929, he photographed that road being blasted out of the mountain, right, you know, where the gorge is. And I just thought that was interesting that he would have, you know, I've just puzzled over what he thought about what would have been incredible devastation contrasted with incredible beauty and you know one of the things that really struck me working on this project was visiting so many of these places 100 years later after massa's work and many many others work to protect these places like the smokies and mount mitchell and highlands and the appalachian trail quarter on and on you know, these promotional pieces were extremely successful and, you know, it was hard not to say to a fault at times because so much of the landscape has been run over and devoured. Massa saw an incredible transition going on, I'm sure. And right now there's another transition going on. So I don't know. It's, it was just interesting to puzzle over this landscape a hundred years later after Massa was here and thinking about what he had saw, had seen while working these mountains. And, you know, what would he think about this landscape a hundred years later, a landscape that he had worked in so many ways to be part of protecting? One of the things about looking at Massa's pictures in Southern Appalachian archives, we'll talk a little bit about more about that in a moment. And in your book, is how much they reminded me of photographs that the WPA photographers took a little bit further north in Virginia of similar clear cutting in in the region that became Shenandoah National Park and how the light is 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 somewhat similar in that you know the light was just bouncing off of cleared land and how he found and helped preserve 
beauty in nature here that the WPA photographers for the North were, were really a little bit too late to capture. You quote in the book, and I love this part, <laughs> you quote Ansel Adams as saying how, quote, devilish hard it was to photograph the Appalachians. And I'm sure it is, right? I mean, the air here is is more humid than the air out West, which impacts how you see and what you can show. The mountains in, in the Southern Appalachians are enormously more tightly folded and dense than Adams's beloved Sierra. But of course, what Adams was referring to is that the mountains in the Southern Appalachians are enormously more eroded than the Sierra mountains are. And so, of course, there's less differentiation between them. So what were some of the ways Mass have found of communicating the scale and the beauty of the place in his pictures? Because I think he succeeded and enormously. I think Massa had a gift for capturing light in this landscape. I mean, there were other good photographers around during that period as well, but I think Massa probably captured light better than anyone else. And I think he captured shadow and light Mm -hmm. in ways that were extremely compelling visually. You know, I can totally get how Ansel Adams would just look at these mountains and go (laughs) away, you know? You know, I forget how many days that that Ansel Adams was here in the Smokies. And, you know, I think he got four photographs out of that project. And, you know, yeah, I, I laughed he, at that. <laughs> <laughs> right. I doubt if he'd ever even heard of George Massa. And that, that just kind of, that that's a little bit painful thinking that someone like Massa had immersed himself in this landscape in such a, a intense way. I mean, like a total immersion. And I think psychologically, artistically, Massa was wed to this landscape in a profound kind of way. And of course, Ansel Adams didn't take the time to do that. (laughs) uh, No, and of course, Adams at times in his life denied giving two beans about the work of Carlton Watkins and and Adams included Watkins in shows. So I I think it's, Mm -hmm. I mean, Adams once said that George Fisk was his favorite photographer of Yosemite, which is as preposterous as preposterous can be. So Adams wasn't beyond bending his memory when it served his own purposes. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that Massa does in in, in his pictures of the Southern Appalachians is that I think he's looked, and, and I have no way of proving this. This is all just visual observation, you know, taken from the pictures themselves. But he's composing images in the same way pictorialist photographers in the Northeast and in California are. And to me, that of those compositions and application of them to the Southern Appalachian landscape pretty strongly indicates to me that he knew what was going on in Mm -hmm. art and photography of 1910s, 20s, and early 30s America, and that he was engaging with it. He didn't have a San Francisco gallery or a New York dealer, but he seems to be mindfully playing on the same field. I agree. Something worth giving a lot of attention to. Being in California, maybe he saw Watkins photographs, galleries, who knows? We just don't know what his artistic, where his artistic drive was birthed from. Or Ann Brigman um, a little bit later, you know, closer to when he was there. Right. Perhaps those questions can be answered by the biographical work that's being hopefully going to come out in the next two to three years by Paul Bonesteel, who did do a documentary on Massa in 2003, The Mystery of George Massa, and of course Ken Burns brought him up as well. But Paul and Janet now have received some funding to hire Japanese researchers to try and see if they can unravel Massa's life from, you know, for the first 25 years of his life. 
uh, mm. and then on because there's just really not anything known between 1906 and 1907 and 1915 about what he was doing in this country either with their funding and with their contract with Great Smoky Mountains Association, maybe some some new light on just who George Massa was and what his influences were, will you know will become more available and apparent to us all with that work. I hope so. I hope that they just aren't hitting dead ends everywhere, and you know we're just left to live with this great mysterious character, mm. these mountains that just for me anyway, grows more mysterious all the time. You know, I've known Paul and Janet both for a long time and I'm, I'm really jealous of them because I didn't want to stop writing this book. I wanted to, uh, <laughs> um, to, to be part of, uh, you know, and of course I've offered myself up to Paul and Janet for um, whatever efforts I can be of assistance with. It's, it's absolutely wild to me that Massa isn't better known. I mean, so far as I know, so far as accessible through outside databases anyway. His work isn't in major institutional collections such as those at MoMA or the Met or or the Getty or SF MoMA. And so that's certainly one reason. I mean, you can find Mass's work in archival collections in Western North Carolina, but not in the, the big urban collections. One of the things I think your book does a really good job of is pointing to some other reasons having to do with discrimination and bigotry of the 20s, 30s, and afterward about why Massa isn't better known? What are, are some of those reasons? Well, he died in poverty and had lost pretty much everything during the Depression. He dies uh, in 1933. Yeah, 1933. Mm-hmm. Uh, his best friend, Horace Kepper, had died in 1931, which had been, was incredible, enormous personal loss for him. He, he said that he quite never got over that and considered Kepper, you know, just this in a huge tragic moment in his life was to lose that man. So following his death, his negatives were all lost. Well, they, the, his negatives were purchased by Lyman Fisher in Asheville for like $50, which the Carolina Mountain Club handled up his estate and, you know, enough, sold enough of, of what they had of his to, to cover burial expenses. And then the negatives were lost. People began ripping off his images and, his photographs that people had suddenly were becoming used in the postcard industry and Fisher used them in the postcard industry. The year that Massa died, the first guidebook to the Smokies had been written by Massa and Nashville Citizen Times reporter George McCoy. And Massa was credited in that first edition of that Smokies guidebook. And then the second edition, which came out like a year after Massa died, there was no mention of Massa, you know, Wow. and Massa had, spent so much i mean he knew more about massively more about park nomenclature and place and geographical descriptions than anyone arno camera the park service and called him the best mountaineer on the western side of the smokies in north carolina you know, he served on the nomenclature committee even though he was never made an official member of the nomenclature committee for reasons we don't know he was on the nomenclature committee to establish place names for the smokies i guess ad hoc uh, Kepper was an official member, but you know Massa drew these incredibly complex and accurate schematics of watersheds in the Smokies, and you know he knew the park really like no one. And then everyone begins ripping off his work. His negatives, like I said, were lost. It took Carolina Mountain Club quite some time to actually raise the money for a headstone. Several years before they even put a headstone on Massa's grave, his images just were scattered to the winds. And they have been 
collected over the years and placed in, in various institutions. But, you know, that was just a real tragedy. There was no archival response to his death. You know, and one can only speculate about, about the times. You know, the Grove Park Inn several years later would serve as a internment camp for Japanese diplomats. I'm sure Massa encountered racism in these mountains. It's just it's hard to believe he wouldn't. So I think that, yeah, there's there's a there's an underlying piece to this that that I think that question gets at about his life and you know who he was, who he was as an individual as much as who he was as an artist and a photographer. That for me is one of the big mysteries. It's just as an individual, what got that guy out of bed every day and put him out in a landscape where he most likely was completely underappreciated by many. This is, I guess, sort of tangentially related to the question, but uh, Horace Keppert had been bequeathed a mountain in the Smokies uh, by the nomenclature committee, and there was Mount Keppert still there. And uh, before he even died, Keppert had a mountain in the park, proposed park on its way to being a park named for him. And AT, AT runs over. Yes, exactly. Right, right, right there at it. And, uh, you know, and Massa had nothing and the Park Service resisted it for decades, naming anything after Massa, considered him, you know, not, you know, just as like one of the letters I read from the Park Service, I can't remember which superintendent it was, just basically said, well, you know, there are a lot of people like George Massa on that side of the park working on Smokey's, you know, designation. And uh, the Carolina Mountain Club pushed it and pushed it and pushed it to their credit. In 1961, a peak was named for Massa in the, in the Smokies. And you know, but just that resistance to recognizing this Japanese American for being such an instrumental piece of how that park was protected. It says a lot about how his photography was lost, I think, and underappreciated. Yeah, Massa Knob is a little bit off the AT. And in the book, you write about bushwhacking your way up it. Yeah, quite a day. You know, one, of the, one of the images in the book is one that Massa took from the 20s at Newfound Gap, where the Appalachian Trail crosses Highway 440, what is now Highway 441, and Massa and Horace Keppert had traversed the Smoky, had gone around the Smokies to the town of Gatlinburg, which is on the northern side of the park now, just at, at the time, not much of anything, and now it's just this monstrosity of a, you know, lack of a better word, just a really tacky place for tourists that the park largely is the, you know, is the result of the park being established. But he and Kepper came up through that side of the park and drove up to this spot where the Unaka mountain range, you know, basically bisects the Smokies and that's the Tennessee, North Carolina state line. And it was just a single lane, bad gravel road. And they get up to Newfound Gap and there's just like a pull off there. And there's a photograph in the book of Mass looking down on what is likely Horace Keppert looking off to the east in the Smokies. Very rugged, most rugged part of the Smokies and where all the, most of the large majority of the remaining old growth forest is in the Smokies. And uh, he and Keppert try to get on down to Cherokee, North Carolina, where the Cherokee Quala Boundary, Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians are. And they get stuck not long after crossing that gap and end up, you know, walking to a champion fiber lumber company. And during the pandemic, that place, that very place that Massa photographed uh, was arguably one of the busiest national park parking lots in the country. 
So it's a blessing and a curse. I don't know. <laughs> the Great Smoky Mountains National Park is about equally in eastern Tennessee and western North Carolina. Massanob, I take a certain delight in uh, knowing, is by, you know, the, the, the summit of Massanob is by a few dozen yards on the North Carolina side of the park. <laughs> Brent Martin, thank you very much. Hey, thank you so much, Tyler. It was great to talk to you and, and spread the word about this wonderful human being. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.